Before we jump into today's episode, a brief word from our sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burnt out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. Not sure where to start? Locumstory.com is the place where you can get real unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is locum tenant? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locum tenants can work for you. Go to locumstory.com or doctorpodcastnetwork slash locumstory and get the answers. So greeting everyone. Uh, this is Jeff Siegel. I'm the host of Medical Liability Minute. I'm uh, CEO of Medical Justice. And we're joined today by Bill Gorin. Um, let me tell you about him because we're going to do a deep dive into the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. I know what everybody's thinking right now. Oh no, the ADA. I don't want to talk about that. Y you will it, you will receive so many pearls of wisdom today that you will be paying me with gold for all of this information. Um, and we'll we'll do a dive with the ADA, um, preventing you from becoming a defendant and helping you if you're a plaintiff. So it's a double-edged sword. Um, let me give you a little, little bit of his background. So Bill um, has a law and consulting practice. He also um, has a blog site as well as a website called Understanding the ADA. Um, this was an award-winning uh, top ABA 100 um, blog site for many, many years. Uh, all the focus on understanding the ADA so the client understands what it means to comply with the law. So he does consulting, counseling, representation, and training services involving compliance with ADA, Rehabilitation Act of 1973, etc., etc. Um, he understands on a visceral level how the ADA works. He is deaf with congenital bilateral hearing loss of 60 to 90 plus decibels, but functions entirely in the hearing world thanks to hearing, hearing aids and lip reading. Um, for reasons independent of his deafness, he also uses voice dictation technology to access his uh, computer. Um, I can also add, and I'll need to explain what this means, is that um, he has trained his miniature poodle to be a hearing dog while he practices virtually. And I'm definitely, in fact, I may want to start with that. But anyway, welcome, Bill. Glad you're with us today. Glad to be here. Before we get started, you really need to explain to me what your dog is capable of doing. Um, I know canines can do so many different things, but this is the first time I've heard that um, a dog can actually supplement and assist a hearing impaired individual. Uh, service animals can be for all kinds of disabilities. You more commonly see them for people in wheelchairs, uh, people who are blind. That's where you most commonly see them. You also see them as feeder dogs uh, for people who are epileptic. Uh, for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, most commonly, they will use a service dog in their house, and they don't necessarily need it outside, either because they function as a hearing person like I do, or they're ASL, and they use ASL outside. So I practice law virtually, and I have trained my dog. If there is some kind of sound around the house, I've trained them to bark and alert me that there's a sound going on. 
so that I can figure out what I might need to attend to. And he's, uh, poodles are really smart. He's here right with me now. If he tears out of here, it's because he's heard something. So uh, it's really helpful because I can then be aware of things that I might not otherwise be aware of, such as a doorbell or a package being dropped off or things like that. So um, service animals and emotional support animals is a, if you want to get into all the nitty gritty about service animals and emotional support animals and assistance animals, and the various laws that are involved, I make those presentations. It's a two-hour presentation, so I don't want to bore everybody here. But there are four different rules that are involved when you're dealing with service animals, emotional support animals. You've got the employment provisions of the ADA, which are basically don't exist, but you have to go about it one way. Hey, Bill. Bill, why don't we get started really simple? Like, what is the ADA? Explain to our uh, listeners, sure. what is the Americans with Disability sure. Act? I mean, we've all it heard is. of it, but mm-hmm. I don't think we understand it viscerally. All right. The Americans with Disabilities Act was signed by George H.W. Bush in 1990. It was hailed as the Civil Rights Act for people with disabilities. It's based on the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 which is a law that prevents discrimination against people with disabilities if you're taking federal funds. And it's divided into several titles. Title I is employment. Title II is accessing non-federal governmental entities. Title III is accessing places of public accommodations. Title IV is telecommunications. You don't see a lot of that. Uh, Title V is miscellaneous matters, such as retaliation and interference. And the thing that makes the ADA so incredibly difficult, especially in the physician space when they're dealing with professional recovery programs, is that you could have all three titles going on simultaneously. Uh, Title I is regulated by the EOC. Title II and III are regulated by DOJ. Uh, Each title, they all go with the definitional terms of the ADA. But then each title has its own statutes and its own regulations and its own guidances and technical assistance manuals and all that other stuff. So just because you're familiar with one title doesn't mean you're necessarily familiar with the other titles. And that's something to be aware of. Uh, I focus on the ADA uh, and related laws. So that includes Fair Housing Act, Air Carrier Access Act. some other laws that come into play, a constitutional law, for example. Uh, I also serve the ADA. Yeah, there we go. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, you started by saying that if you accept federal funds, that that is a threshold issue. Now, um, certainly many medical... No, it's not. Yeah, so let me just, let me me follow that with you. So um, certainly most practices except many practices accept Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. But there are some practices that are entirely cash pay, don't accept a penny from the federal government. But you're suggesting um, correctly that the ADA still applies, that the office is, is a area of public accommodation. Help us understand that. Yeah. Um, the uh, Rehabilitation Act, which the ADA is based upon, applies if you take federal funds. What the ADA did is it expanded it to go beyond federal funds. So 
if you're an employer of 15 or more people, you're subject to the employment provisions. If yeah. you're a non-federal governmental entity, you're subject to the Title II provisions. And if you're a place of public accommodation, which is defined in the statute, you're subject to the Title III provisions. So, place of public of whether you take federal funds. Yeah, I mean, just a place of public accommodation would be many, if not most businesses. Um, if somebody walks into a medical office, arguably ADA applies, whether you have one employee or 10 employees as it relates to the patients. Is that a fair statement? Uh, the what is a place of public accommodation is yeah. uh, defined in 42 United States Code 12181, paragraph 7. So you look that up and you'll see that there is a list of categories that are places of public accommodations. The things that are in the categories are not exclusive. The categories are exclusive. And one of the things that are listed in that statute is uh, doctor's offices are explicitly places of public accommodation. So that's easy. It's easy that if you are a doctor's office open to the public, um, it is a place of public accommodation. The ADA, certainly one of the chapters, applies to it and you have to comply. Correct? Correct. All right. So let's keep marching. Um, what else does the ADA imply? Um, I mean, certainly it was well intended. It was designed to level the playing field so that people with um, disabilities could be provided or would be provided reasonable accommodations to um, excel in the in the workplace, among other places. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think that the law has achieved its stated goal? Do you think we need more enforcement, less enforcement? You know, you we, we now have seen uh, so much activity over the years. And how should doctors think of this? Is this is it helpful? Is it harmful? Or like the most lawyerly answer, it depends. Well, first, I want to correct a misimpression from the question, perhaps, that you may not have intended, which is the ADA is not strictly an employment statute. It's an employment statute if you have 15 or more employees. Yep. Um, but if you are accessing non-federal governmental entities, such as medical licensing boards and healthcare licensing boards, that's Title II, doesn't matter how many employees you have. And if you are, if you are a doctor, um, you could be on either side of it. You could be architecturally inaccessible, or perhaps you have a website that's inaccessible. Or uh, more often, uh, or you could be a patient that's trying to come into your office and the patient is not being given an ASL interpreter and you try and wing it without one, uh, you're asking for trouble. So the ADA is much more than just employment. It's going to cover a myriad of things and it may cover things in different ways. So for example, Medical licensing boards would be subject to Title II, but the healthcare recovery, the physician recovery programs, which go by different names depending on the state's um, professional recovery programs, they're going to be subject to Title III. And it can get really complicated because you dealing with all three titles at once with different rules and you're all trying to get to a certain place. Uh, so that can get really complicated. So let's keep it real. Let's go through some vignettes, some examples with the ADA 
in action. Um, let's assume in this vignette, <clears throat> your patient that you've never seen before is deaf. Do you have an obligation to bring in an interpreter who speaks sign language? If so, who pays? What about using a family member? How should how should practices think about this issue? Uh, with respect to a deaf individual, um, the the uh, Title II and Title III of the ADA have something called effective communication rules, and they're in the Code of Federal Regulations. The two different titles differ in uh, in some ways. You want to, in this whole area, you're looking for the legal compliance. You, you want to read a case out of the 11th Circuit called Silver versus Baptist Health South Florida. And what that will tell you is that where you have complicated information going back and forth, if you have someone who is culturally deaf, that is someone who is ASL, um, ASL, uh, culturally deaf is a defined is a term that generally means ASL, state school for the deaf, and medically deaf, 65 to 165 to uh, 95 plus decibel hearing loss. So the culturally deaf individual, which uses ASL, uh, if you are a physician and you don't bring in an ASL interpreter, uh, you were asking for it. I actually represented, I actually worked with litigator here in Atlanta on such a case, and we are fortunate to get a settlement for the client. Um, but uh, <clears throat> you have to pay for the interpreter. You have to do it. You can't impose a surcharge on the uh, client to bring an interpreter. The regulations, case law are quite clear that if uh, a family member is not going to cut it either. So, um, and that can be an issue. For example, uh, the case that I was involved in, the council and I, we wound up spending some money on the uh, interpreter in order to uh, best represent our deaf, culturally deaf uh, client. And, and that's just the way it goes. So don't try imposing the cost on the deaf individual. That won't work. And uh, with respect to medicine, because of the complex information being exchanged, if someone is asking for an ASL interpreter, that, uh, that person, you should get it for them. And it should be a qualified ASL interpreter. When I deal with the culturally deaf individual, I tell them that if they don't get an ASL interpreter for that doctor's appointment, they need to walk away uh, because it creates too many problems if they don't. So, um, so that's uh, the, but the effective communication rules don't just apply to hearing. Any disability that deals with communication would be covered under that effective communication rule. Um, so it. I mean, these are complaint-driven, so ultimately it's viewed from the vantage point of the patient, the patient that comes in. <clears throat> if the patient is entirely comfortable with a family member and they have a long-standing relationship and are able to effectively communicate complex information, there may be circumstances where that would be okay. Uh, I think that's what no. you're saying. You're saying that no matter what, you should be getting an ASL interpreter? It's uh, terrible. It's terrible practice um, because you are now putting a family member 
an interpreter needs to be objective and need to be able to say what the client, what the patient is saying and need to be able to communicate that effectively. The uh, family member is not uh, someone who's necessarily capable of uh, translating uh, medical information the way an ASL interpreter is. Um, it's just a horrible idea. And uh, you can look at the regulations. The regulations will say, unless there's some kind of extreme emergency, uh, family members should not be involved. It, I think it's uh, negligence. It's just horrible practice. And if you read the Silver versus Baptist House South Florida the case, they frown on that too. So I would, if I was a physician's I certainly would, uh, and you had a culturally deaf individual that is someone who is ASL, I certainly would be finding that ASL person and having them in there with me. I would not be passing notes back and forth. Uh, most uh, culturally deaf individuals aren't reading beyond the fourth grade reading level. So passing notes back and forth is not going to be effective. And um, is I'm assuming there's some obligation for the patient to ask in advance. I mean, let they've got to let the practice know that there's a need for an ASL interpreter. The the practice can't be Nostradamus um, predicting. They, they will. Uh, the culturally deaf individuals are generally pretty aggressive about letting the practice know. Um, you know, you you can because ASL interpreters are not easy to find necessarily. You can ask, saying if you need an ASL interpreter, try and give us some notice so that we can figure it out when, uh, you know, that we can get somebody in. There's certainly nothing wrong with saying for ASL interpreters, uh, give me some notice so I can line something up. Certainly nothing wrong with that. And just to educate our listeners, what what does that typically run? I'm sure it varies depending upon what part of the country you live in, but what would be a, a normal range of cost for securing an ASL interpreter for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe an hour? Uh, they generally run an hour increments, I believe. I believe they don't do less than an hour. Yeah. And it's going to depend from place to place. I haven't used one recently, and I can't remember offhand what I paid for for the culturally deaf individual that I, I represented with someone else. Right. Um, Trying to, because we went through a service, and I can't remember. I don't want to give a figure out because I can't remember what it is. I mean, I do remember one practice saying, oh, the cost is greater than what they collect from insurance. But the flip argument, let me just finish the thread. The flip, the flip side of that argument is this is not a particularly frequent occurrence. It's an infrequent occurrence. and um, it really is the cost of doing business. I mean, ultimately, it is the law. You have to follow the law. And if the truth is, is that 100% of your patients do not fall into your into this category. So, I mean, I hear the complaint, but most of the time, this is just a one-off. I mean, this is not a common uh, issue in a practice. Um, in other words, just just eat it up. It's not it's not the end of the world. The um you're right. It's not something that's going to happen all the time. Uh, the second thing to realize is that um, 
the ADA standard for when something is something you don't have to do, what's called an undue hardship in Title One or an undue burden in Title Two and Title Three isn't that it just costs money. Um, it's that you're basically looking at bankrupting your business. Uh, you look to the entire resources of the entity to see whether it's going to cost too much and to not provide an ASL interpreter and a doctor's office. I think that's going to be impossible to pull off. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to spend that money. So speaking and again, of- like you say, it's not, it's not something that's going to happen a lot. Um, you're gonna, you're talking about the culturally deaf individual. Uh, you're talking about people, other people who may have communication difficulties. But again, uh, in that situation, there may be a variety of accommodations that might work. Uh, it, it's not going to happen a tremendous amount. The ADA sets it up so that it's the cost of doing business, just like it was for the litigator and I that took on that case. We spent some money on interpreters, and we had to pay out for that, and uh, we had to eat that. Uh, but that's the cost of doing business. That's how the ADA sets itself up. And I'm, I'm assuming, and but I may be wrong, that the inability to speak English as a native language and the requirement to potentially bring in a interpreter who speaks the other language, for example, Mandarin or Turkish or whatnot, that's not part of the ADA, or is it? No, that's correct. It's not part of the ADA. Okay. So let's migrate to doctor's uh, website. That could be part of the Civil Rights Act. But that's not part of the ADA. Oh, interesting. So it's still you still need to pay attention to it. It's just a different law and different Correct. enforcement. But the the gist is still the same. Effective communication. If someone comes into the practice, there's an obligation to uh, to communicate effectively, and sometimes that means eating the cost uh, of a uh, of an interpreter, regardless of whether it's due to a disability or to proficiency in a foreign language? Uh, I have a uh, LLM in health law, graduate law degree in health law, and one of the principles in both law and medicine is informed consent. And how do you get the person to make an informed consent if they can't understand uh, the information they're being told? I don't know how you answer that question. Outside of the fact you might have ADA or Civil Rights Act come into play, Certainly as a matter of informed consent, if they're not being given the information they need to make a decision, that's a problem. One of the guiding principles is that informed consent is more than a document. It's a process, and the process Mm -hmm. depends upon effective communication. So let's migrate into the domain of something every, almost every practice has now a website. And um, over the past year, we've had two or three doctors and the year is early at this point two or three doctors whose website was getting beaten up as not being compliant with the ada as not being um, sensitive to the needs of the vision impaired i know that this is a work in progress and is evolving but talk about that for a moment Um, again you've got a website which is the billboard to the public of what a practice can and will do. And the question is, what what does a practice need to do 
to ensure that their website is accessible by the vision impaired? Is it the is it the prospective patient's problem? Is it the practice's problem? Is it everybody's problem? Um, couple of things. Uh, first of all, I just posted a blog about half hour, 45 minutes ago on my understanding the ADA blog. It isn't always the uh, visually impaired person that has a problem with website accessibility. Could be a, a hard of hearing individual where you have videos that are not captioned. Uh, that's a case that I talk about today. Could be someone with joint issues that can't talk to the computer and tell the website through the computer to be able to get the website to do what it needs to do. So it can be a variety of different things. As far as what does it mean to have an ADA compliant website, the problem is, is that there isn't a clear answer. So good for lawyers and bad for everybody else. The Obama administration had proposed regulations and then President Trump got elected and took those regulations down and then put those regulations on inactive. So all we have is a legal standard called meaningful accessibility as a preventive law matter, as a gold standard, something called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which is put together by a worldwide consortium uh, right now, they're on 2.1, so WCAG 2.1. That's the gold standard, but it doesn't substitute for meaningful accessibility. Will the Biden administration come up with regulations in the area? I don't know. Uh, there's been some legislation put in the hopper called the Online Accessibility Act, which is an absolute disaster for persons with disabilities. I see no chance of that passing without an amendment. Uh, if you're curious about that particular piece of legislation, uh, just go to understandingtheada.com and punch in the search engine online accessibility app, and you'll see what it talks about, what it says, and what the problems are. One of the things that uh, we learned about recently is that there's a website, I think if you do a Google search for accessibility and WAVE, that's spelled W-A-V-E, it allows you to plug in your domain name for your website, and it'll very right. quickly tell you what works well and what doesn't work well, um, as well as how to remediate. And many of the uh, the ideas uh, for remediation are pretty easy. They're not particularly difficult. If you take that list and just shoot it over to your webmaster, most webmasters are you know, highly skilled in being able to get you closer to the goal. It may not be perfect, but it's certainly better. In addition, there are some recommendations for certain widgets you can place on your website so that the end user can make some adjustments. For example, you may not want to adjust the look and feel of your website with all the bells and whistles you put into place, but if the color contrast is such that it's almost impossible for someone who's vision impaired to read or see, um, in addition to what we talked about in terms of what you can embed directly, the widget allows the end user to control the contrast so they can more easily uh, discern what you stuck on there. So, it's a, I mean, it sounds uh, like I there's would, more than I one answer. Jump, jump in here a couple Please. of things. Uh, first of all, um, 
first of all, I, I think Wave is a good start. It's not a substitute for an IT professional uh, looking at WCAG and really deep and really comparing the website to the WCAG standard, but it's a good start. You have your IT professionals using Wave and then uh, re and then constantly monitoring it and is also aware of the WCAG standards, uh, I think you can be in pretty good shape. Uh, second of all, with widgets, there's now litigation going on. Those widgets can create issues for individuals with disabilities so that it becomes impossible for them to effectively access the website with the technology they use. For example, some of those widgets can play havoc with screen readers. So uh, widgets are not a cure-all at all. That's a growing part of uh, website litigation where uh, plaintiffs uh, are having their screen readers interfered with by the widgets and are suing. So uh, be careful out there with widgets. Uh, they may be helpful, but they also may make things a lot worse. There, there's really no substitute for IT professionals familiar with WCAG. And how do they get that training? I mean, is there a certification in that? Not that I'm aware of, but the WCAG standards are on the internet. You just put in WCAG 2.0, 2.1 into the internet search engine, and the WCAG guidelines will pop up. Now, again, uh, most of this stuff is for coders, there may be issues that you have to get a lawyer involved with, but for the most part, it really becomes a matter of these IT professionals who are coders being able to work with that, not something lawyers would generally deal with. But how do doctors ask the right questions? If they have their webmaster, do you just ask them, uh, their webmaster, the IT professionals, um, do you code with WCAG? particular version in mind? How do you ask the right questions? Because we can, I mean, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of a business owner and a doctor. I don't code websites, um, but I know right. how to ask the right questions uh, of a right. webmaster. And I want to make sure that I can ask the right questions. Because otherwise, we're just sitting ducks here. Agreed. I, I would want to know from the webmaster how familiar they are with WCAG and what is their process for making sure that the website uh, works with WCAG. Uh, you might even put it into your contract. I, I certainly did that with the place that hosts my blog. Uh, so that's something to think about. Just you want to ask them, your this website that you're hosting. How do you ensure that it's WCAG consistent with WCAG level AA standards? Well, that's a helpful question to know. If you ask the right question, you can at least shuttle the work into uh, the proper domain. And if not, you can help inform the industry that this is something that they need to know. Before we end, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. 
That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.